Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life podcast. This is your host, Krista Bigler, private practice integrative nutritionist, helping people across the U.S. reverse digestive issues, eczema, and autoimmunity via phone and video consult. To learn more, visit lessstressednutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Okay, so today on The Less Stressed Life, I'm delighted to welcome Celeste Kaufman. Celeste is a licensed professional counselor in private practice and a certified school counselor. She has worked for over 13 years in the education and counseling fields, giving particular emphasis to working with clients experiencing anxiety. So thank you so much for being here. Welcome, Celeste. Thank you, Krista. I'm super excited. This is one of my favorite things to do, and it's been a little while since I've been on some podcasts. So thank you for inviting me. Well, I just love sharing in this platform. And the reason I asked you on is because I had not very long ago had some moms ask me about anxiety in their children. And unfortunately, I, well, not unfortunately, but recently I wrote a pretty long article about some of the nutritional related manifestations of anxiety. And so I was just looking at some of the stats. Oh my gosh, it's staggering. So, I mean, you probably know this, but for the listeners, let me just share. So, It's thought that between 20 and 30% of adults have experienced anxiety in this year or in their lifetime. I think it's like 30% this year, 20% in lifetime. In kids, I believe it's 30%, but 10% of them, it's causing impairment to their daily lives. Like it's significantly impacting their lives where they're not functioning appropriately, which is, that's insane. That is way too much and it's not talked about enough. So I'm glad we're going to be talking about that today. Yeah. I mean, I think, Krista, that one of the most misunderstood things is that um, people don't really realize anxiety until it is causing life-limiting impairments, like what you're talking about. And it's unfortunate because we could catch it a lot earlier. And especially if you see anxiety in your child, we do kind of feel like the earlier that we see anxiety in someone's lifetime, the more likely they are to have bouts of it again later in life. And if it goes untreated as a child, it can definitely be harder to treat later on. It's just like anything like eating habits. You know, if you get used to eating like, um, you know, just all processed food and junk for as a, as a young child, then you're going to be that way as an adult too. It's going to be harder to break that habit. So yeah, I mean, I think it really is. And, And, you know, it's also important to note that we don't have a lot of the statistics on children because their language is different. We may misunderstand as parents or even as clinicians what's actually going on. So in some cases, I think maybe even those statistics that you're mentioning could be even higher than what we actually know. 
Wow. So I, one, I totally resonate with the longer you have the problem, uh, the worse it becomes. I actually have that conversation with people a lot. You know, if you've been dealing with this for years and years and years or a decade, this might not resolve overnight because it could have manifested into a worse condition by now. Um, because that's how life works. Things don't really get better on their own. Even though we think they do, we're like, I'll just ignore it and it'll go away. It just keeps building and then it becomes our normal and it's kind of a disaster. So, um, so. First, I, I can't wait to talk all about like how to recognize these signs of anxiety and whatnot. But let's just start at the beginning. How did you get to where you are now? How did you start working with kids and anxiety? And tell me a little bit about that background and your story. Yeah, so um, Krista, early on, I worked in a, I'm a first generation college ex- uh, student. So talk about super anxiety, trying to go to a pretty rigorous Uh, private school um, for the first time with no help from anybody who really knew much about education and just loved the education and training world. I really thrived in an environment. uh, I went to a liberal arts college where we could do writing and presenting and teaching and training. And so I wanted to segue that into education. I knew that was going to be a big part of what I wanted to do, but I didn't really want to work in the K through 12 setting. I was really excited by working with adults and college students in particular So got started in a career in student affairs and uh, as my master's and just uh, during that program, the assistantship or the scholarship that I used did not pan out. And I had to look and say, okay, what can I change my major to really quickly that still overlaps? And counseling was, was the thing that kept coming up. I went to see a counselor myself actually at the university and through that process, she said, you know, really what seems to be, seems to be ringing your bells a lot is teaching people about things and helping people make a change. It doesn't seem that you're so latched on to it having to be work in a university. So at that time, I got my master's in counseling and uh, landed my first job in a college advising center. So I got to work with that population and then was sort of recruited uh, or poached off that job to work in school counseling. So I did that for a number of years, um, was promoted up to the Board of Education for another um another uh, school district at that time and did that. And then uh, as I was going through that process, really got to meet lots of children, adults, work with all different populations because you're not just treating the child. A lot of times you're also treating the parents. Um, And then just decided to open my own practice. It it was something I always wanted to do. So now I'm in private practice um, here in Florence, Alabama. Um, My practice is Thoughtful Journey Counseling. And so um, I see adults, I see children, different ages, and anxiety is just such a common issue that it was one I had seen and had experience with clients over and over and over and something I'd seen in my family and even experienced as an adult myself. So it just kind of became a natural segue that I sort of became the anxiety person in our area, which has been amazing because I've been able to really focus my research down and and give people uh, a really good handle on what it is they're actually looking for. And it's, it's just super fun. I could not be more blessed and contented with my work right now. Beautiful. So I love it. So we've got nutrition, or I'm sorry, we've got anxiety across the life cycle because you did college age and then school aged kids and it was just sort of accidental. So, you know, what, what are some signs of anxiety in children? Yeah, in children and adults, they're kind of similar, but they can manifest in different ways because again, our children don't have the language necessarily to speak um, in terms that we maybe understand. So one of the things that I think differentiates anxiety from just worry is that it does cause an impairment in your life. So if I'm worried 
that, um, let's say that I'm, I'm behind on my mortgage and I'm worried I could lose my house. That's really just stress because it's an actual thing that is happening to me. Um, it's identifiable. And if that thing were not happening, I would not be experiencing the stress. Anxiety is different in that someone who's anxious and, and we're just going to be kind of speaking about generalized anxiety today because there's all different ways that that, that could go a hundred. We could talk for a hundred hours about that, but so generalized anxiety is more about real or imagined fears. So maybe I'm, um, I'm worried about my mortgage, even though I don't necessarily have to be because I'm not actually behind on it. And then maybe I'm also worried about my health or maybe, um, if I'm a child, I'm worried that I'm going to fail this year, even though I have, um, A's and B's, or maybe I'm worried that I'm going to lose all my friends, even though I actually have a couple of good friends. Uh, worried that my mom or dad is going to be um, harmed in an accident, uh, whether or not that has ever happened or whether or not they've ever actually had um, a dangerous job. It's essentially anxiety is overestimating the odds that something catastrophic is going to happen and then really underestimating your ability to cope with it if it does. So um, that thought pattern is hallmark for anxiety. Um, and then some of the other symptoms would be irritability. A lot of people don't realize that, but if you feel like maybe an ax is hanging over your head all the time, and then somebody comes over and asks you like, Hey, could you give me directions to the bank? And you, you freak out <laughs> on them. Yeah. Maybe if like, you're saying like, Hey, I've got this ax hanging over my head. Don't you know, I can't be bothered to give you directions right now. So there's that irritability piece. Um, trouble sleeping is also one, and that's one that most people will visit their doctor about rather than actually thinking that it may be anxiety. So trouble sleeping would be, um, fitful sleep, bad dreams, just stressful dreams, uh, trouble falling asleep, trouble waking up in the night or waking too early. Um, and then eating disruptions, which I'm sure you probably see in the practice a lot. So if somebody has gastrointestinal distress, there's uh, diarrhea, vomiting, nausea, um, unexplained stomach aches. And, and really I find that in children, that is the biggest one that they'll say, you know, I have a stomach ache, um, or they'll have, you know, I need, I need to use the restroom. Um, or I feel like I'm going to throw up that for whatever reason is, is just a way that it seems to manifest in the bodies of children. And then just some additional things that, that are hard for children to verbalize would be feelings of being um, on edge or tense, um, muscle tension that a lot of times kids don't really take notice of as much as adults do. But those are some of the the more classic signs. And then those are, you know, kind of the ways that they manifest in children. It's a little bit tricky. A lot of times you do have to have a therapist to sort of help you ask the questions in the right language to be able to really identify what those are. Yeah, that's interesting for me because I mean, really why this topic is fascinating to me is not because I originally thought, oh, I want to work with a lot of clients with anxiety people with gut issues often have anxiety because of that gut brain connection, yeah. right? The vagus nerve innervates the gut. So literally people can get stressed and it'll impact their GI symptoms. Like you just said, occasionally, right? It'll also impact if you've got gut issues, it's going to impact neurotransmitter production, right? Those calming neurotransmitters, mm -hmm. serotonin, which makes melatonin. So I look at bacterial imbalance. So that's how I think of it a little bit from a nutrition mindset. But for someone who doesn't really know anything about anxiety from your perspective, is sometimes the answer simple, like mindset retraining or like, what do you think? Or is it just, do you I start do. with simple I, things and then you work on, you kind of un, unlayer it? Yeah, you definitely do. I mean, one, it's just the first step for me is always building a really good trusting rapport with my clients. So they understand that I'm on their team no matter what. 
Um, I'm impartial. It doesn't affect me, make me um, have an emotional reaction when they say, I'm really worried about this. Whereas maybe somebody in your family or in your friend group might have an emotional reaction if you share some of these symptoms. It's something I deal with every day. So it's not something that's going to be weird to me at all. You know, I have a lot of clients who um, are really, really fearful about disclosing something like self-harm, um, especially children. Or if a mom or dad comes to me, I remember once a mom came to me um, and she was so hysterically crying, we could barely even have a conversation. And she was explaining that her son had cut himself um, on his upper arms, like, like maybe 15, 20 times with a paper clip. And I'm sure that's going to jar a lot of your listeners. And that's really scary to think about. But as a therapist, you have to understand that's my daily life. That's what I hear about and see on the regular. So I was able to, to from a place of calm, uh, set the tone. So that's sort of the second thing is setting a tone for a place of calm and setting a tone for positivity and what we can do to make changes. So then the next step is going to be um, if I think that we need to have a medical evaluation. So during those times, I will sometimes say, if you have just GI distress, for example, might be one, maybe we need to look at a medical evaluation or talk to a nutritionist and see. I recently treated a child who ended up having um, celiac disease. And so that was huge. Once we got that managed, that was the, the bulk of the issue. And then the anxiety about what if I do have GI symptoms at school or at home or church or whatever, that I could work on. So medical evaluation is three. And then you know, from there, I sort of think about counseling the same way we would think about maybe diabetes management. That's, that's kind of a good example I came up with a couple of days ago with a client that I think works. Whereas, so someone can get diabetes from uh, just a hereditary predisposition, right? Or they could get diabetes from an event, like say gestational diabetes would be a good example of that. Uh, anxiety is the same way. You can have a hereditary um, factor there or you might have an event, a trauma, or something that, that could cause it to kind of come on. Um, just in the same way as diabetes, anxiety or any mental health condition may or may not be helped with medication. It may or may not, that's a discussion to have. Um, and then with diabetes, you know, we talk about behavior change. So changing your diet to help control blood sugar and help control some of the additional symptoms. I think about counseling like that piece, that behavior change where we just sort of evaluate what's the problem list? Where is, when is anxiety problem? When is it not a problem? How can we unpack that and do more of the things that bring success and less of the things that don't bring success? So there's a lot of, you know, really specific examples we can get into, but that's sort of the, the starting process for me and any good therapist that you use, I think should be going in that direction. I love that you brought that up that way, because of course, that's how I kind of move through clients as well. However, if someone comes to me primarily with anxiety, which they typically would not come to a nutritionist with anxiety first, that's where I get apprehensive, right? That's usually a side effect of all their other stuff. I can just tell on the phone immediately yeah. that these people have, like, they just feed, they come with an aura of stress. Uh, and, and that's it, right? Like you can, I always say I can identify an anxiety client. And I was training a group of counselors recently. I said, you know, if they're 30 minutes early, if they send me, you know, five or six texts because they're worried about that they won't find parking or that they don't know, like, do they need to have exact change? Do I accept MasterCard? You know, those different things. It, you're right. There is that that aura and that you can kind of feel it coming off of them, right? Oh, you know, actually, I need to talk about that for one second from like a professional to a professional because I didn't see that coming. I actually <laughs> just really appreciate that you mentioned it that way because I didn't see that coming, right? I didn't see that. I didn't think, oh, I'm going to have like the majority of my clients will have anxiety because I'm working with gut issues. 
Yeah. I think it can be a little interesting to try to compartmentalize and you have to get really used to uh, handling those questions, right? Because it can be kind of, my point is, is disconnecting from people's emotions, right? Um, and yeah. you're an expert at that as a therapist. But for me, that was a skill I still hone completely. Like that was probably yeah. one of the most challenging things of going into private practice was separating the emotional part, which is tricky because our lives are emotional things, right? In general. Yeah. So, and it, it affects everything. The reason that stress and anxiety affect our, our GI system is because cortisol, the stress hormone, is transmitted through the bloodstream. So our bloodstream touches what? Everything. <laughs> your brain, your your lungs, your belly, your muscles, everything. It, it's, it gets bathed um, in that way. So, But it is. You're right. When you're looking primarily from a nutrition standpoint, um, or if a school counselor is looking primarily from an academic standpoint, or if a, you know, clergy person is looking primarily from a spiritual standpoint, we, we're kind of, sometimes we do kind of get in our own little house and we forget to, to refer out. That's why I'm so glad for us to connect because I'm excited to have someone that works on nutritional issues and can do that online so that can help, you know, make those referrals. Cause it's not easy in a rural area to be able to find, a, a whole treatment team, which I think is really the best when we can get a whole team of people involved. I couldn't agree more. Thank God for virtual telehealth and whatnot, because I'm also in a rural place. And I really don't think I think that's a disservice to think that we're limited by our locations now. Um, it's it's a beautiful thing, what we can do for sure. Um, so just to back up, I think I wanted to talk about the child that you worked with that had celiac disease. So that's mm-hmm. where if someone comes to me with a child with anxiety, I'm like, I feel like you should go get assessed, you know, X, Y, Z as well. There's so many factors. So I never want to tell a parent like, oh, I can totally fix this. Yes, many of these things with diet will generally resolve their other things, but I prefer if there's other symptoms there as well. But when you were going through steps, were you going through some of, um, you had said two and three, but I missed one. Do you remember what that was? You said two is setting a tone for positivity when you're working with people. And three is a medical evaluation. Was there a number yeah. one? I just wanted to recap. Yeah. Number one is going to be establishing a rapport. So for what that means for a therapist is establishing with a person that you have what we call unconditional positive regard for them. Meaning, um, I'm on your team. If I'm your therapist, it doesn't matter what you say to me uh, within reason, you know, we're not going to let a client get abusive with us or those type things. But, you know, I'm going to look at you and say, you have a right to the feelings that you have. I'm not going to abandon you because those feelings are too scary for me. Um, we're going to work together as a team and, and helping. Uh, I, I love the way that we explain it as counselors to say to a client, I'm the expert in, um, you know, human behavior and an expert in Uh, mental health and emotions and relationships and how people grow and change over the life cycle, but you're the expert in you. And so that's how we're going to work together as a team. I will have things from my education or from my experience that I think are going to be useful that I'm going to make a suggestion for. And then you're going to be the expert in you to say, no, Celeste, that doesn't quite jive with what I want to do, or yes, I'll try it, even though I'm hesitant. And then we just course correct from there. So yeah, one is always establish that rapport um, and that trusting relationship. I love that so much. I actually have that written into my policies, right? Like I'm the expert in this. You're the expert in you. I will refer out for these other things because we can't do, you know, we're trying to, we're working on a whole life thing, right? Yes, exactly. And just as a side note, Krista, a lot of people think that, you know, maybe it's best to get with the, the uh, most experienced counselor or that you would have to get with a counselor who specifically says that they are trained in this specific issue. And that's that's great. But all counselors are trained 
in all the issues. We, we have a, a really broad uh, training program. A lot of people don't realize that. But actually, statistically, you're going to have better results with a counselor that you like, even if they're less experienced than a counselor that you don't like. So I tell people, you know, kind of jokingly, I'm the easiest therapist in town to break up with. So if you don't like me, <laughs> we're probably not going to, it's not going to be a good fit. So let me refer you to somebody that you like even if that person is maybe less qualified than I am or more so, you you have to, you know, to be able to trust somebody, you have to like them. And, and, and once you know, like, and trust someone, then you can work on your own stuff and work on your own issues from there. So that's super important. If you don't get, you know, for any of the listeners, if you don't get a good feeling from the mental health professional that you're working with, you need to, to switch quickly. Maybe give it like one more visit just to see, but, but make a switch really quickly. Um, because that's when you're going to have the best success. I love that. I think we're cut from the same cloth. Celeste, <laughs> so I always start every client, like you don't get through the doors without booking a call just to talk about the situation and get to know each other to see if we even like each other. Do you follow a similar process? I do. I, I rely a lot on my Psychology Today profile. So I have that going. And then I rely a lot on my website to have just to really be spoken in language. I used to try to be super, super uh, professional and polished. And I still do try to do that. But but now I, I communicate a lot more in my real voice. And I do that on my website. So changing some of the language. Um, you know, my, my website says, feel like yourself again. And rather than saying things like, are you suffering from anxiety, panic, you know, just so, so changing some of that language um, allows people, I think, to, to see into the window of how I practice a little bit more. Um, and so what I find is that most people from reading that do actually just go ahead and book with me right up front online because I do get a lot of word of mouth. But um, if clients have questions, I definitely encourage them to call me and we'll chat about it. I do a lot of chats with people who never book services just because I tell them, hey, you know what you really probably need is a doctor in this case or what you really probably need is for your friend to call me instead of you calling me to try to book an appointment for your friend or mm. those type of things. So yeah, it's, it's all about that. The first visit I always tell my clients, you have no obligation. We're just sitting here today so that I can take a history. You can get a feeling for me. And then from there at the end, I'll tell you what I think. And then you have every right to say yes or no at that point. Yep, exactly. Perfect. Definitely. So I know today, Celeste, you wanted to talk about three ways parents might accidentally be making their children's anxiety worse. And yeah. I can't wait for you to share that with us. So I'll Thank let you take it away. Thank you. So yeah, we as parents, you know, that's, that's our big fear, right? Is that we're going to do something that's going to harm our children. Today, I was walking my own into um, summer camp and I just couldn't help but park at the door for just a second and watch and look in and say like, is she going to like sit with those girls? Or are they going to let her <laughs> sit there? Or am I going to have that mama bear moment of being uh, really worried or, or do I need to intervene? And so um, what, what I've actually found in working with parents uh, over the number of years is that there are some ways that parents can make anxiety worse. And so I want to be sure that we don't accidentally stumble into that, right? So the first way that a parent could accidentally make anxiety worse would be by noticing a problem, but doing nothing. So just like you mentioned at the beginning, that people may say, um, I'm, I'm just going to ignore it and it'll go away, or let's give it until Christmas break. I hear that one a lot. Or let's give it until spring break. <laughs> Um, let's just kind of see how things do once they settle down. So doing nothing. So 
maybe there's a refusal from a parent to believe that mental health is even a thing. To I get a lot of clients that say, I just sort of thought this was hogwash until I sat down with you and started saying, oh my gosh, this really makes a lot of sense for just, uh, it's just like a teaching and learning kind of process. So maybe, maybe a parent refuses to believe in mental health as just a thing. Maybe a parent buries their head in the sand. They don't want to do anything because they just think, if my child is having emotional difficulties, if my child is cutting, if my child is depressed, if my child is anxious, I could somehow be at fault. And I just can't deal with that. That's, that's too close to home for me. And so I'm going to just ignore it. Or um, parents might do nothing in a sense of having some disbelief that young children can worry. Um, I, I think we really do our children a disservice when parents say to kids, you don't have anything to worry about. You're just all you're doing is second grade. All you have to do is worry about com- coming to school and and then playing at home. And really the truth of it is our students are so connected to media and they're so honed into what we're saying and doing and what other people are saying and doing that they can become anxious. A trigger can can make them anxious for the slightest thing. I remember as a kid having a lot of what I now recognize as anxiety about safety that someone break into our home. And I saw a television show where, and it was something like MacGyver, gosh, in the eighties, like, I don't know if you remember that, but <laughs> mm-hmm. where they had a glass cutter and they were, they were, it was like some high level spy cutting the glass. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, is that a thing? Do criminals have that? And the answer is, yeah, I guess in a bank heist, but probably not in some, you know, rural city to break in. So, so kids can turn over anxiety in their mind, whether it's a predisposition or whether it's something that happens to them that you don't even know about. Um, and, and just ignoring it or doing nothing. That's the first thing that you can do to make things worse. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I, okay. I, I feel again, I think our careers are mirrored. <laughs> There's nothing yeah, that could make your situation worse than to just let it think it's going to go away on its own. Right. I know nobody ever says to me, um, I really wish I would have waited to see you until it was worse. Do they ever say that to you? No, never. They're like, oh, I wish I'd have known about this a long time ago. So yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I had a family member who said I, I referred her to a counselor because uh, counselors can't treat their own family members. I referred her and she said, geez, Celeste, if I'd had any idea how much this would have helped, I would have done it even if my insurance didn't pay or I would have done it six months ago. And I'm like, yes, what have I been telling you my entire career? But, know. you know, you, you can't, never know. I had to just tell someone that the other day, like, I can't convince you something that you have to learn on your own, unfortunately. And the bummer is it of it, and I probably say this too much on this show, is that sometimes people have to let things get really bad before they're willing to deal with it unfortunately, but that's just the trend. I mean, that's how humans are. If we were more, more proactive, probably everything in life would be cheaper, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. When the money that, that I have spent and seen people spend on like chiropractors or stress management books, geez, I mean, just get to the root of the problem and see it for what it is and, and resolve it. I think that that's, that that's huge. So yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's incredible. WebMD uh, has a statistic that says that probably 75% to 90% of doctor visits are actually related to stress rather than physical manifestations. Absolutely. So if you can just imagine, isn't that crazy? If you can yep. imagine three quarters, you know, to up to 90% of the money you paid for medical intervention last year, if just last year was maybe related to something as simple as stress management, where all you needed to do was come in and see me. And we talked through a couple of things that maybe you had not told anyone um, or had not told anyone who was supportive. And maybe I like teach you 
how to uh, calm down at the end of the day and sleep better. And all of a sudden it's resolved. You know, the average visit for most of my clients is somewhere six, eight sessions that they start to see really real results um, right away. So doing nothing, I mean, yeah, you can, you can wait uh, as long as you feel like you need to wait, but you need to know that the problem only is going to get worse. It's like nutritionally, if we talk about weight loss, is it easier to lose five pounds or is it easier to lose 50? And is it easier to lose 50 or 500, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, you can treat a paper cut with first aid a lot more easily than you can uh, a gangrenous limb <laughs> that started as a paper cut. Absolutely. So, I want to hinge one uh, once more on that statistic from WebMD about stress. I have a, I consult with a, a doctor who reviews micronutrient tests all the time. And that was, I remember him just so starkly saying a long time ago, kind of early on when I started consulting with him on different cases, oh, this is mostly stress. Like this is largely stress yeah, or this cool. is largely stress. And actually it's funny because, you know, you're ta you're speaking now on the Less Stress Life podcast, which was a total accident, right? I didn't want to name it that. It was just that no one really understood what the word inflammation meant. So I needed a synonym. Yeah. And since then, it's become amazing to me and eye opening how much stress impacts everyone. And, you know, that's one of the things I talk to people about the first time I talk to them on the phone, and or like on my webinar is the types of stress that people deal with. And one is just straight stress. And then there's um, infection stress and food stress and other types of things. So there's different ways it manifests, right? But at the end of the day, like what's keeping you sick is a type of stress, one type or another. Number two, you, you kind of caught what I'm saying there about number one, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Not doing anything. Yes, not doing anything. So if you notice that your child is having some nightmares or you're noticing that your child is having some gastrointestinal issues that are maybe not better explained uh, by a pediatrician or if there's something going on that you just can't quite put your finger on, do something, whether that's read a book or educate yourself a little bit, visit a therapist, talk to your child's guidance counselor. All those things are great preliminary steps. So number two, the second way that a parent can accidentally make anxiety worse in their child is enabling school or activity avoidance. So what happens when we have a student who has, let me, let me just ask you, you know, as a, as a, when you see parents and they say, you know, my child had, you know, a stomach ache and some diarrhea today before school. So what do they do? Send them to school? No, they keep them home, right? Mm -hmm. Keep them home from school because they're thinking that their child is actually physically sick or could be contagious. So it's an easy mistake to make. But we sort of start that cycle for enabling school avoidance or activity avoidance. So if we have a child who says, you know, mom, I used to love going to gymnastics. It's so fun. Or maybe they don't even verbalize that. Maybe you've just noticed it. And then suddenly they're not having any interest in gymnastics. They don't want to go. And not only do they not want to go, but maybe they're crying or they're, um, they're having these stomach aches or, or throwing up at gymnastics or those type things. That's a good indicator that maybe there's something going on there that has happened that your child is feeling really uh, concerned about. And so, um, you know, to miss once or twice, okay, that's, that's kind of human nature as a parent. But where we begin to enable is when we realize that our child is nervous and that the simple act of letting them avoid the activity or avoid school in particular kind of cuts the nervousness or the anxiety, that's the moment we know that we have a problem. Because if we continue to avoid something that makes us fearful, we don't gain that ground back. We actually lose ground. And that's how people can actually become agoraphobic or what we would say someone who's afraid to leave the house uh, you know, it just starts with, well, I don't really want to go to school today because uh, I have kind of a stomach ache. 
first period is always hard. So mom says, okay, well, let me just check you in after first period. That'll be, you know, problem solved today. We'll give you a little bit of a quote mental health day. So then maybe a couple days later, the child says, you know, I, I know I didn't go to first period, but like, I felt like people were kind of looking at me. And so I just, I don't feel like I can go to second period either. What if we just check in at lunch? And, and mom or dad says, okay, you know, that that's okay. We'll do that. Well, then maybe that happens a couple of times. And then all of a sudden we've, we've lost ground and lost ground until your student is maybe missing the whole day or your student maybe misses a week of school. And what's really hard, Krista, is that a lot of times when I will get called in to consult, I'll have a student who maybe hasn't been in school or in an, a particular activity for sometimes six or eight weeks. You know, they don't they don't consult anyone until they're actually at the point of maybe academically being in danger of failing or having been brought before a truancy court or something of that nature. So what it's really important for parents to realize is that one of the mainline treatments for anxiety is that we want to, to do what's called gradual exposure, which means allowing a person to be exposed to something they're afraid of through um, therapeutic techniques like teaching them to relax, teaching them to talk to themselves in a way that is comforting rather than a way that is scary, and, and getting them back into their normal life so that they're not being disrupted so much. So that's the second way that a parent could accidentally make things worse by enabling them um, to avoid an activity, particularly school, that actually just makes, makes the whole problem bigger. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I love that you gave us a solution too, because to allow people to have a gradual exposure back into it, because I, that was my, you were talking and I said, this makes perfect sense, but what can this parent do or what can you do about this? So thank you. Yeah. And so, you know, as a therapist, you know, it's, it's great to do it as a therapist, but something you can also do at home is to sort of talk with your child and say, let's make a list of what is really scary and let's sort of rank order it. We call that in therapy a subjective units of distress scale. So um, let's say that your child maybe is uh, frightened by uh, eating in the cafeteria. They don't like that. That's They feel like people are watching them eat or they, they think they're going to make a misstep. And, and just as a side note, kids seem to be the most anxious um, and the most acting out seems to occur in schools during unstructured times. So I usually will see a problem in uh, PE or something like band or, or dance practice or something like that, or during lunch because it's unstructured or between classes. So, um, you know, if, if the student is saying, well, you know, walking in the cafeteria, maybe I'm stressed at a level one, but actually going through the cafeteria line and getting my food is stressed at a level 20 because I'm afraid I'm going to drop my tray because one time I stumbled or whatever. And then you, you help them kind of work all the way up to what's maybe a 100. I'm, I'm most fearful about, um, the, the moment where I have to try to find someone to sit with at lunch because I'm standing there. I feel like everybody's looking at me and I'm kind of like looking around and I don't know who's there. So once you know what the order is, then you kind of know how to, to gradually expose. And that's what your therapist will work with you on. So maybe they'll start with the whole issue of being in the cafeteria line and being, um, being worried about uh, dropping the tray. That's where as a therapist, I would uh, treat the client by unpacking what are those thoughts. So what's the thought that the student's actually having in their mind is the thought, I'm going to drop something. I'm going to be so embarrassed. Everybody is going to hate me forever because I'm, I'll look like such a... a idiot, you know, for spilling everything. And so I'll help the client reframe that talk. You know, I'll, I'll say, is it really everybody? Will every single person see it if you drop it? You know, what are, what are the odds or, or what's, what is the, 
what percentage do you believe that you actually will drop that tray? How many times have you successfully managed your tray without dropping it? You know, really changing some of that language. And then also just that can be very relaxing in itself because the scripts that we tell ourselves are, are over half the battle a lot of times with anxiety. And then, you know, in gradually exposing them, we'll also work on relaxation techniques where I'll talk to my clients about, you know, maybe you have that fear that you're going to have a panic attack or that you're going to start crying um, when you walk out into the main part of the cafeteria to find somewhere to sit. So we work on our self-talk. And then also I'm going to teach you some really easy breathing techniques or some really easy muscle relaxation techniques to help you uh, recenter and refocus back to where uh, you're in the present moment instead of thinking 10 steps ahead and, and being really worried about it. So that's, that's kind of how that gradual exposure works. And I, I think it's the most, one of the most amazing pieces of science that counselors use. I love it. Mm-hmm. So then looking at the third one, let's look at the third way that parents can make anxiety worse. And so the third way that I think we make anxiety worse accidentally, of course, is visiting the doctor or healthcare provider too much and maybe relying too much on a healthcare provider. So when you're with a pediatrician with your child, we know that typically that visit is going to be maybe 10 to 15 minutes. And, uh, you know, my sister will hate me for saying this. She's a doctor, but there are statistics out there that a lot of times physicians are just kind of having to make an educated guess. They can't look at something. I mean, obviously they can look at something and be like, Oh, that's chicken pox, 100% certain. But some things like GI distress or, um, you know, eczema, some skin conditions, eczema, early eczema, sometimes they say, you know, I don't really know what that is. Like, have you changed detergents? Have you uh, changed lotions or bath products? You know, they're kind of doing some trial and error. But many parents rely on our our physicians as kind of the be all and the end all. And we rely on them to remember everything from our case every time we've brought our our children to, um, to see them before. So, Instead of examining, you know, kind of the whole person, a lot of parents will stick with just it's easier, frankly, to visit the doctor because then I can have a yes or no response. I have a doctor's excuse. I have kind of a socially acceptable way to confront this this problem that's happening. And so I feel like some of the problems start to be is that kids maybe they hear about scary conditions or parents hear about really scary conditions like, OK, maybe it's just. Um, maybe your, your child is just having nausea from anxiety, or maybe we have to do like the, what do they call it? The barium swallow, or we have to do a, an endoscopy or a lot of invasive tests that maybe are not even necessary. Um, and as your kids hear about those scarier conditions, I've heard children come in and say, um, well, they said they were going to have to do a blood test if I come in again. So I don't want to say anything to my mom because I'm scared that I'll have to go in and, and get a blood test for this or whatever. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's one challenge is that it can actually make it worse. It can also, uh, lead your kids to look to medications instead of coping skills. And we're kind of bad about this in the U S we tend to look for medical care because it's a quick answer because we are culturally so ingrained to get back to work, get back to school. Um, weakness is, is a sign to everyone else that you're not coping. And so instead of learning some of those behavior things, we do tend to go with some of those medical treatments. Um, which is good if that's what the problem is. But if it's anxiety, then that's not going to help as much as a combination of, of a couple different things. And then also visiting the doctor too much can really reinforce that sick role. We can, we can sort of get addicted to being sick in some ways and addicted to saying, 
you know, I just have GI problems. That's just the way I am. Or I am just going to always feel this way. Um, and that really takes away some of the power from our children and from us as adults where what we really need to feel is empowered because even if it is a physical issue, if you're not empowered, if you're feeling beaten down and broken and very hopeless and very helpless, your prognosis is not going to be great anyway. But if you can feel empowered and you can feel um, that you are advocating for your health, I think that your prognosis health-wise and mental health-wise is always going to be better. So that's the third way that I think we accidentally as parents can, can make anxiety worse. And that's visiting the doctor too much or relying too much on healthcare only without looking at the other pieces of the puzzle. Being, so being um, siloed. Yes, yes, totally, totally. So, um, so those are the three things. I mean, there, there will always be outlying cases, obviously, and different things that can make anxiety worse or make it better. And sometimes there's that unicorn out there of, of anxiety that, that changes or responds in a different way. But in general, these are the most common that I'm going to see in my practice and have seen just in, in different practices and consulting through schools and other venues. Um, so I think those are things that our parents that are listening really need to watch out for. Well, I feel uh, very in tune with you. I could probably change the title of your three pieces to things that will make your problem worse <laughs> yeah, from a health yeah. standpoint if you <laughs> not doing anything, enabling, well, maybe not the enabling, you know, enabling the yeah. problem and then getting, you know, being siloed, looking for a quick fix, visiting the doctor too much. So, um, yeah. So Celeste, thank you so much for going over that with us. I feel like that was, I hope that the parents listening got a lot of value from it. Um, and even if you're not a parent, because like you said, there's quite a bit of overlap as well. So yes. what's your gut reaction to tell someone that's listening right now? Let's say they're anxious or they have an anxious child and they don't know where to start. Um, I would say the first thing I would do would be reach out maybe online and look for something like an anxiety test. If you were to just Google um, anxiety assessment or anxiety quiz. You can find a lot of those from some pretty reputable sources to just give you sort of a place to start. A lot of times we don't even know what language to use regarding anxiety. So I'd start there. There's a, a really good one um, called the scared assessment. I can send you a link for that later. Um, if you have show notes, but that's one that, um, you can just get online for free. Um, it's best evaluated obviously by a healthcare professional, but it is one that can, can help you ask your child some of those questions. And then there are things like the Penn state worry questionnaire. That's one that adults can use on their own and, and take that and, and use that just as kind of a springboard. So the higher you score, the more indicative it is that possibly anxiety is the issue and not just worry or a legitimate stressor. And so, uh, you know, take a look at that, see how your results come out. And then from there, if you are on the higher end, even if it's just moderately high, if it's halfway, think about looking for some referrals in your area of a local counselor. You can do that for psychology uh, via psychology today. You can um, locate counselors in your area. So one of the best ways is to ask around people that you know um, who they've had great success with. You can also ask your pediatrician for a list and then to do some introductory phone calls. Read about that, that therapist's experience with children or experience with the problem that you're specifically mentioning. And then just check it out. I mean, again, you're not committed to doing anything. It's And it's really not as scary as it seems. You're going to show up. They're going to let you sit in a really comfortable seat. They're going to be really good conversationalists usually and really nice people who genuinely want to help and they're very interested in you. And they're going to guide you through asking you some questions about your symptoms in a really 
um, easy conversational way that makes you actually feel really normal. Um, and then they're, they're going to give you some ideas about what they think could help or what might um, make a difference. And then you have the right at that point to say yes or no, this is what I'm going to do. So it's, it's, it could not be easier. I, I think everyone should try to visit a, a therapist or a counselor just at some point in their lives, just to see what it's all about so that they know if not for themselves, then for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Smart people get therapy, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So where can people find you, Celeste? Um, probably the best way is to, if you want to check out my website, which is thoughtfuljourneycounseling.com. Uh, that's kind of a fun way to just see about my practice and some other things that I have offered there. And if I have any events or, or other products, they usually pop up there. Um, I also have a teacher's pay teachers store. Uh, most of your teachers will be familiar with that. Or if you have any homeschoolers in the audience, they may be familiar with that, but teachers pay teachers. And I think you have the link to that for my store directly. I do have a couple of, um, resources for bullying. I have a few resources that, um, can be used for parents. They really are are useful for parents or for school counselors to teach about different um, subjects that could be helpful for your children. And I do have an anxiety group counseling curriculum that I'm working on that should be published before the the school year starts uh, this year that people could purchase. And it is something that can be definitely used for families or it can be used for school counselors. So there's free and uh, paid resources that are available for educators as well as for families there on that Teachers Pay Teachers site. Yep. And that will be in the show notes. So great. Good. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us um, today, Celeste. I loved listening to your Southern drawl. I found it very relaxing. <laughs> so I will take this as a as a therapy. No, I'm just joking. Session. Yeah. Just listening to your voice. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Krista. It's been such an honor. It really is for you to even have asked me. It's, it's such an honor. I hope that your audience finds that helpful. Yeah. Thanks. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 